Welcome to the Republican Professor. This afternoon, we have with us Charles Kessler. Thank you, Charles, for being here. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, I've never been on a program called the Republican Professor before. <laughs> well, so is, is this where Republican professors go to die? Or is this, <laughs> uh, is this the birthplace of Republican professors? What is this? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a really uh, good question. Um, it's a question about the future, and I yeah. can't I can't answer that because um, I haven't seen any of of us die yet. <laughs> but uh, we'll uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, it's it's pretty new. We um, the first uh, episode was recorded last year, um, uh-huh. and. Uh, but we're picking up steam and uh, I think we have something like 42 episodes published now. So very good going. Yeah. We've, we've had some pretty, pretty uh, interesting interviews. We've had military people on business. Uh Um, Our, um, our audience is eclectic as of right now, as far as I can tell. It's a it's a pretty small but growing audience, curious general audience. But we mm-hmm. we interview um, uh, business entrepreneur people, um, military elected officials, um, uh, academics primarily. Um, but it's basically whomever I'm curious about and whomever. I'm interested in talking to. And so you fit right into that because you were one of my uh, favorite professors at Claremont. I had you for four courses. Uh, One was um, on Hegel. I think it was called philosophy of history Mm -hmm. back about 10 years ago. And uh, one was on um, the federalist. That was eight years ago. And uh, then yes, two- I'm, I'm reteaching that one right now. <laughs> oh, great. That We're was a two wonderful- weeks away from the end. <laughs> the end. Well, I have two of these and I'm uh-huh. holding up for those who are not uh, watching on YouTube. I'm holding up the Federalist Papers Signet Classics Edition, which has the introduction and notes by Charles Kessler, who's our guest today. Um, and I have, uh, this, this is my first copy. This was starting to fall apart. So I have a second copy, which I'm beginning to make notes in. And sometimes I don't know which copy I have, what note in, but I love what I love about that edition is it's got a a copy of the constitution. It's got a copy of the declaration of independence and there's cross references with the text of the federalist and the relevant parts of the constitution, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really enlightened and helpful. And it's also got the articles of confederation in there. So you have something to compare it to. (laughs) Um, When I I took it for two other courses at CMC, Claremont McKenna College. Uh, One was an audit in liberalism and conservatism in, in the spring of 2016. And it was, uh, I think I was the only graduate student that was sitting in on that class. Uh, I was all undergraduates. And I, um, I, I have a recording, Dr. Kessler, of you predicting that Trump would beat Hillary 
and I believe it was February 23rd. It's not a very good recording, uh, but it was, uh, but it is clear. If you listen carefully enough, you can, it's a little bit of a banter with the students and uh, a student happened to ask you, what would, what do you think would happen? And February 23rd, I think sometime in the afternoon, it's time stamped somehow. uh, You said that you thought that Trump would beat Hillary. You, you predicted that February 23rd, 2016 (laughs) to the shock and horror of some of the students in that class. And uh, I was a little surprised too at the time, but then you gave a rationale and the rationale made sense to me. So what was the rationale? (laughs) I believe it was um, that she, that she had a glass jaw. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had that right. That she, she was just vulnerable and she would, he had the type of personality that wouldn't be held back. And, (laughs) and, um, and then I think something about the States that he won, like Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that's that my memory is correct on that, but, um, (laughs) so you have, I did say the the same thing. Um, that month, I don't know whether it was earlier or later to a group of, um, people in Washington, DC, uh, uh, and, and, um, the, 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 I recall the reaction was even stronger than uh, in the classroom in Claremont. Wow. Uh, and it was, uh, it, there was <laughs> almost literally, you know, wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I thought it was correct at the time. It seemed to be likely. Um, so uh, I, I was, uh, I guess I was happy to be, uh, to be right. Uh, yeah, but um, well, it, I, uh, I remember you know, where it, I was. Sort of a one, I, I think a, uh, yeah. hard, hard to reproduce that. Uh, yes, that victory a second That's time. Right. That's um, right. And uh, not only in twenty twenty, but I, I, I think it would be hard in twenty twenty four as well. But um, mm-hmm. we've still got a way to go. Right. Well, I remember where I was when uh, I realized that you might have been right that time. I was in Los Angeles. I was teaching as an adjunct professor at Cal State Northridge, which is in the uh-huh. city of Los Angeles. And I was in a gun store just waiting traffic out, uh, just mainly watching people. I was just interested in and in who was going into these gun stores and what they were doing. And and I, I there was kind of a panic uh and there was a very diverse crowd in this particular store, sporting goods store. Uh, I think it was called Turner's Outdoorsman. And it was in Pasadena, I believe uh-huh. it was. Yes. And um, the, there were some Arab guys there. There was, I think, a lesbian couple. There was Mexican, Hispanic. I mean, it was a very diverse crowd there. And, um, and it was later in the evening and uh, I was about to get back on the highway and I, I happened to ask, how's it going? How bad is it? And on the election, cause I hadn't looked at my, the news at all. And the guy said, oh, it looks like Trump is winning. Mm-hmm. And he said it loud enough for the whole store to hear. 
and yeah. and it was crowded and the whole store became quiet and but it was a kind of quiet that was a a hopeful buoyant uh quiet that was my interpretation of it and i'll never forget it because i i at that moment i i remembered your prediction and i thought i i wonder if kessler is right that this is he's going to pull it off so that was uh that's my story <laughs> you're uh quite a few years ago you wrote this book um i am the change barack obama and was the first title the crisis of liberalism was it yes they the hardcover the title? title is the crisis and then the uh, paperback which came out a few months uh after yeah. the 2012 election um at the advice of the of the publisher, I changed the subtitle to uh, Barack Obama and the future of liberalism. But yes, not, none okay. of the arguments changed. Uh, okay. So. Well, this book came out ten years ago. I guess this is the ten year anniversary of this book. Yes, I, I, it I just occurred to right. me. Yes, it just occurred to me. That's right. Um, I'm uh, emailing back and forth with Hadley Arcus about his book that came out 20 years ago, Natural Right and the Right to Choose. Mm -hmm. And I pointed out that it was 20 years ago that that book came out and he, he had not thought about it. He said, oh, it's been 20 years. I can't believe it. This is just this past week. And I said, I noticed that you dedicated it to Michael Yulman. Uh -huh. And that was a, he was a mentor of mine for over a decade um, before his untimely passing, sudden passing. And um uh, so I'm trying to get, uh, Hadley to come on and talk about that book and the dedication to, to you. Oh, good, good. But I asked you on originally to talk about your latest book crisis of the two constitutions, um, which, uh, is, uh, it seems like it's thicker than, I am the change looking at it. It seems like yes, it's got it a lot more bulk to it. Um, yeah. And you dedicate, you say to the memory of Harry Jaffa, Tom Silver and Peter Schramm. Um, right. So tell us how you came about this book and what, what, what did you want to do with this book? Crisis of the two constitutions. Well, this was, um, uh, a, a book of which I, uh, which began, um, some of the book is new and uh, some of it is uh, old. And I began with the idea of collecting um, previously published things along um, sort of uh, a uh, three themes that, that fit together um, as one. And uh, as I got into it and as COVID hit, uh, just as I was writing it, um, I decided I might as well take all the old stuff and update it a bit and, to re you know, uh, rewrite it, smooth it out some, and then uh, write some new things to add to it and fill in uh, some gaps in the argument. So I, the, the book is substantially refreshed from what it would have been. Uh, and it's uh, the, the themes are simple. The themes are the the founding, which is the first third of the book, you might say, then the uh, 
the, the rise of modern American politics and the progressive movement and its 20th century uh, successors. And then the third part is sort of the conservative reaction to the rise of liberalism. Um, and the, the, the conceit I use in the book is really that uh, Americans are so dyspep dyspeptic about politics these days because they have some fundamental disagreements um, yes. that um, are, are widening and deepening. And so you have a kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's the usual rule is one constitution per customer, uh, per country. <laughs> <clears throat> and, but we, we in a way have two that are battling it out. And the, the first one is what I, what I call the conservative constitution or really the, the founder's constitution, um, which we, uh, you know, is the original from 1787, but as amended, uh, 27 uh, amendments over the years, versus the, what the, the liberals constitution, which they call the living constitution. Yeah. And um, we usually hear about the living constitution in judicial confirmation hearings, when senators ask judges or would-be justices, um, you know, do you believe? Do you believe in the living constitution, uh, or do you believe in originalism or some other synonym um, of the opposite one? And uh, so, I think the ordinary person's view might be that these two constitutions are judicial. Uh, constructions or they're really of concern mostly to judges. Uh, and I, I disagree with that. I think that they are in fact um, just as much ideas that guide the judicial, the uh, executive and the legislative branches as, as uh, the judicial branch. And in fact, they're more fundamental in a way in respect of the political branches than of the judicial branch, even though you hear, hear about them more in regard to whichever poor justice is up for confirmation yeah. <laughs> at a time. The first part there is the founder's constitution. And then the second part is the progressive's constitution. And you have another third part, conservatives and the two constitutions, right? Um, which that part might be worth the price of the book, right there. <laughs> that last part, I've, I'm, um, maybe uh, it'd be helpful to set the stage a little bit. Um, I mentioned one of the courses I, I took from you was a liberalism and con and conservatism, I believe it was called. Uh huh. Yes. Um, I the, how do you define conservative? conservative versus progressive? Well, uh, progressive, um, let, me, let me go back one stage and say that um, the old Re Republican Party before uh, the New Deal, uh, Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party, William McKinley's Republican Party, uh, uh, didn't use the term conservative very often in respect right. of themselves. They thought right. of themselves 
uh, often at least as the as the liberal party. And by liberal, they meant the liberal liberalism as in the Declaration of Independence or in um, uh, John Locke or in sort of the tradition of individual liberty and rule of law. Did they use that term? Did Lincoln use the term liberal? Yes, as an adjective. Uh, he didn't use the term thematically. He didn't use liberalism in quite the way that we use liberalism. Uh, but that word existed too. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, liberal as a liberalism is, a, of course, a virtue. Uh, generosity or liberalism is an yes. old, very old fashioned virtue, um, not just Christian or religious, but, uh, you know, secular too. Aristotle has generosity or liberalism as liberal li liberality as mm -hmm. one of his, as one of the virtues that every human being should strive for. Uh, and so in that sense, to be liberal has always been a good thing. Uh, it meant being generous, being uh, large, spirit, spirited, large-hearted, um, right. and uh, that's right. That was um, uh, you could say the polarity between freedom and slavery was so strong in American politics in the 19th century that the the meaning of liberal or liberalism was was washed through that um, that associated distinction. Uh, so you, uh, you, what, what happened was the, in the early part of the 20th century, the progressives um, regarded liberalism as backward looking and somewhat old fashioned, but in need of updating. And so the great divide comes in the early 20th century between um, the, uh, those, those progressives who regard themselves as the new liberals, that is the updated with it 20th century model of liberalism, uh, and those progressives who prefer not to be called liberals at all because uh, to the extent that liberalism meant uh, rule of law, property, uh, individual freedom, limited government, consent of the governed, all of those ideas associated, say, with limited government. Those, um, those would be called liberal? This, uh, those would be looking. Yeah. So the liberalism of that, under that understanding, you mentioned property rights, limited government, right. enumerated powers, that would be considered the old liberalism? That was the old liberalism, which wasn't... Um, fit for purpose anymore. Um, and so uh, liberals sort of divided as to what they should do, whether they should uh, become uh, progressives or radicals or something else uh, and continue to attack liberalism as the old fashioned uh, limited government uh, superstition that they regarded it as. Um, but then it, when FDR came along, he, he had a brilliant um, political insight, which was that he ought to proclaim that the Democratic Party is the new party of liberalism, and uh, and that republicanism is not about, I mean, capital R, Republican Partyism, is not about um, 
freedom, equality, uh, and uh, human flourishing, really. <clears throat> but it was an old-fashioned, backward-looking, and uh, um, you know, niggardly um, sort of stinting human philosophy. And he gave FDR gave a series of speeches in '38 in the campaign, and a few be even before that, in which he made the argument that his was the the party of what he called militant uh, liberalism. And, and those speeches worked. <clears throat> I mean, the Democrats began to call themselves liberals uh, and the American people slowly began to call the Democrats liberals uh, as well. And when that happened, um, all the opponents of the New Deal who had, like Herbert Hoover, who had always thought of himself as a liberal, suddenly were homeless. They had no name yeah. to describe themselves. And so right. they took up the name conservative um, faute de mieux because they had nothing better. Mm. Um, to, and in, in fact, it was <laughs> to add insult to injury. It was FDR's idea. He suggested to them that they should call themselves conservatives because from his point of view, they were. They were trying to conserve an old and dying world wow. and not embrace the new um, wow. new world that was a borning, you know. Wow. Uh, you have a chapter called the three waves of liberalism. And I've, I recognize that material from your, your book from 10 years ago on Barack Obama, where you go through yes. the different phases of liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, the FDR phase, that would have been, which, which wave of liberalism would that be? That's the second wave. Second wave. Yeah. Yeah, what I call first wave liberalism was basically the progressive era. So that's the second decade of the 20th century. And then the 1930s, that's the third wave. That's the New Deal, great society, uh, New Deal, sorry, wave, great depression wave. <laughs> and uh, the 60s is the third wave, the beginning of the third wave. And this is tied with another theme that you have, which is the administrative state. Yes. This is tied in with that somehow, the growth of the administrative state. We think of the New Deal. Well, maybe people don't know, but the, to refresh your mind for those listening, the New Deal was an incredibly expansive growth in government. Um, Yes. Regu regulating and, the economy in ways that had never been regulated before to that extent, like right. defining what a work week was and how much you could negotiate for, for uh, in no case, in terms of the minimum wage, in no case, will it be legal right. for you to take a job that uh, pays under that would be illegal now, those kind of things. And then, and then arms of government, to enforce that <laughs> basically yeah. um no, that's right and uh, you know uh, so what are sometimes called uh social and economic rights or socioeconomic rights which uh, yeah. roosevelt uh wrapped up in a neat package that he called the second bill of rights and the second bill of rights had all these 
things which are now very central to our politics and have been for, you know, 80, uh, well, 90 years, let's say, uh, things like the uh, right to health care, uh, a right to a job, right to uh, a, a good education, those kinds of things, which are not in the original Bill of Rights um, and are in a somewhat um, um, and certainly amb amb ambivalent relationship to the first Bill of Rights, but which are really probably more important now than the first Bill of Rights. Uh, our politics is more about how much we spend uh, in order to deliver healthcare and education and all of these good things, um, which cost a lot um, and carry with them all kinds of restrictions. Uh, and so that's, you know, our, our politics is, um, we're sort of divided between those two constitutional bills of rights uh, the original one, part of the original constitution, and the uh, the second Bill of Rights, which is really part of the second constitution. You have a chapter in the first uh, part, the Founders Constitution, about education, which I thought was interesting as an educator. Uh, mm -hmm. Perpetuating the Republic, Education and Politics. Um, what does education have to do with the crisis of the two constitutions? <laughs> well, that's a very good question, <laughs> uh, Lucas. Uh, well, I take a, my view of the founding is to, to look at it, um, to begin looking at it as a founding, that is as an attempt to start something new and perpetuate it. Mm -hmm. um, and that means obviously the new form of government, you know, the new, the, the, the new um, constitution creates a presidency and a Supreme Court, two houses of Congress and all that sort of thing, which is standard fare. Um, but the same sort of uh, um, new beginnings, um, that take place uh, inside of government are carried on outside of government in different ways. Yes. And one of the, one of the ways is by a movement, which begins at the end of the founding basically, and continues for several generations uh, into and across the 19th century uh, to create public education in America. Um, you know, there, there, ha there, are own, there were no public schools or common schools in America to begin with, except in New England. It was a, uh, it was a Puritan thing for the, for the most part. Um, and it didn't spread. It, it's, it began to spread, however, down, uh, you know, towards the, uh, the Midwest and the, the middle states um, of uh, uh, of the Union before the Civil War, and after the Civil War, it spread into the South uh, as well. But the, the whole notion that you would create free public schools that uh, eventually children would be compelled to attend for a certain number of years, um, and that would have uh, the backing of parents um, 
you know, that they would have parents would be involved in some way in the running of them um, and all of that, that you would create a whole system of education in order to, to do two things, at least in order to help everyone learn the basics, you know, of uh, reading, writing and arithmetic. Uh, and, and a few other things so that they could be economically self-sufficient as, uh, as individual citizens uh, and family members. And secondly, that the other big object they were seeking was to turn people, turn the citizens of America into Republican citizens, um, uh, you know, into uh, reliably patriotic and intelligent uh, citizens. And so in that sense, the, the uh, Republican <coughs> professor podcast was, uh, <laughs> is part of a, of a long tradition of uh, turning out uh, non-monarchists and anti-monarchists uh, who can govern themselves and, and be proud of uh, governing themselves democratically, small d and small r. Yes. It reminds me of a, a quote that you had in that chapter. I think it was at the end. Um, the last section of that chapter on education it has a section called Dead White Males, <laughs> page 117, 118, I think is the quote. And, and you say, in today's academy, Washington and Lincoln are dismissed as dead white males whose educational relevance to a multicultural world is nil. The truth, however, is very nearly the opposite. The true liberalism and genuine cosmopolitanism of these great men have never been more needed in American education and in American politics, but who will educate the educators? And that's how you end yes. <laughs> that chapter. Do you yes, take unfortunately, that's, I think that's true. Still true. Um, yeah. It, uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, it, I've been attacking uh, uh, criticizing the 1619 project, it seems ever since 1619, <laughs> seems like it's been a long time, but it only, it only popped up a couple of years ago. Um, but, but it's a very, it's very representative of a lot of um, elite opinion about the founders and about dead white males, um, you know, which is that the, the world is now has moved beyond that and uh, white males are not all dead, but their civilization is in a way dead uh, or it revealed as um, exploitative and uh, oppressive. And so that no one in his, in his right mind would think about, um, you know, returning to the principles of dead white males uh, because those principles have already, everyone understands those principles are corrupt and false, um, but of mm. course they don't actually, not, that no. hasn't been demonstrated. Right. It's simply asserted uh, and, and said over and over again with great uh, moral intensity 
but it's far mm-hmm. from being um, true or proven true. Uh, so I think the argument is very much alive, but you have to, um, you have to awaken people. I mean, uh, people yes. are very woke now, <laughs> but, but yet they're not awake, uh, you know, intellectually as they need to be. I've had an opportunity to observe you um, primarily in the classroom for many years, uh, read your writings. Um, of course, you're the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, and you always have uh, a, a short essay at the very beginning that's always um, timely and uh, delightfully written. <laughs> uh, um, Thank you. Well, yeah, Thank you. refreshing to read, always insightful. And um, I, I, I don't think of you as a hateful person. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, enter my mind. I don't think that's ever entered my mind. Um, the thought that you might be a racist or, or engaged in some kind of, or even um, that you would even tolerate such a thing. Um, what do you, you obviously believe uh, deeply in the founding principles and uh, Lincoln principles of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, you believe in America. <laughs> um, what do you say to people that would simply accuse it of being racist? Is, is there, um, how do you approach that when, when it seems like it's just rhetoric? Well, I, I mean, I understand the, the charge, uh, um, because they, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of racism in American history. Yes. And there was, I mean, this, we, this was a slave uh, society, or at least half of it, or, or more or less, mm-hmm. um, uh, for, uh, you know, several centuries. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that. Um, but it's, uh, it's, um, um, I, f- <laughs> I find the best way in, in, to try to talk to people who are uh, who have uh, that opinion that America is racist, but have but are not but have not stopped thinking about the mm-hmm. issue um, is is to is to really just talk to them about American history and about what America is about and what it has done and the crimes it's guilty of and the, but also the, um, uh, the, the magnificent achievements and the heroic personalities that it has um, uh, given birth to as well. And so in, you know, in my, I don't think you took, <laughs> one, one course you didn't take from me is Gov20, which is the you know introductory American politics course, which I've taught for almost forty years now uh, at CMC. Um, and in that course, I always teach, among other things, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And we read, you know, a couple hundred pages of Lincoln and a couple hundred pages of Douglas. Um, and in that, um, and one of the points I make uh, these days when I teach it is look, there is such a thing as white supremacy. Um, and uh, 
Stephen Douglas believes in what, what we would call white supremacy, that the America was founded on the white basis for the sake of white people, by white people, for, this, for, their, for their children and grandchildren and their um, uh, successors. Uh, and, and the blacks have nothing to do with it and can't have anything to do with it. Um, and that I, 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 you know, I think it's good to confront that. Uh, it, it's real. This was, an, this was a very, this was a dominant political opinion in America for a while, for a long time in, in some ways, mm -hmm. um, but that it was opposed by Abraham Lincoln. Um, who argued, you know, in very difficult times, which uh, in, in which in many ways um, race prejudice of a very virulent sort was uh, front and center in American life. Um, he argued quite courageously and clearly, uh, it seems to me at least, that uh, uh, all men are created equal. And, uh, you know, whatever uh, the... Um, you know the distribution of of uh, of um, ability and talent and uh, among people and among races was uh, it had nothing to do with their humanity and with uh, their possession of rights and especially the right to count um, uh, as an uh, as an equal and to uh, have have their own life, liberty, and property protected by equally by government. So, uh, you know, when you when you, I think when you reach out to people um, at least halfway and show them what's true about the notion of white supremacy, and that, however, everything can't be equally white supremacy <laughs> if you've got Lincoln and Douglas debating fundamentally over the morality and the truth of the idea of white supremacy. Hmm. Um, and so that I think is the beginning, you know, it's only the beginning, but it's the beginning of a way to see America uh, uh, as a whole and not just as a part and, and to, and to, to uh, recover a, a reasonable love of country. Um, of the sort that, yeah, you know, Frederick Douglass and uh, Booker T. Washington and uh, you know uh, 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 many other black leaders over the over the over the century, over the centuries, including Martin Luther King, uh, well understood and uh, and uh, explained many times in American history. Do you think that the reason why such sentiments are so popular, at least they seem to be so popular, are that, that, that folks that hold those sentiments or appear to hold them just haven't thought about them, haven't been pushed back on it, haven't uh, had someone, an interlocutor like yourself who is so what they used to call nuanced, <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, maybe. I remember I, that I, would, I, used to I, call I that nuance. Uh, but. You know, the quality of public discussion in America today is not particularly high no. uh, about on on anything. Um, and this is not uh, this has not been a great uh, 
generation for public men and women. You know, I mean, if you look, if you look at the progressives, if you look at the sort of post-World War II generation of American public uh, officials, there, you know, those, there are some very, very bright uh, and uh, learned and serious people in those uh, generations. And there are some around today as well, uh, don't get me wrong, but they don't uh, seem to have uh, um, a leading place or a dominant, or let's say, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, impressive place um, in our con public conversations. And so I understand, uh, right. you know, if, if someone is shouting at you, uh, it's tempting to shout back uh, at them, but you don't get very far that no. way. And, and the only, the only kind of victory you can win is to outshout the other side. Yeah, that's, that's definitely not a way forward. I noticed that your book doesn't have anything about the equal rights amendment in there. Uh, speaking <laughs> of women. Um, so we talked a little bit about racism, maybe talk a little bit about women and, and what women might be interested in finding, uh, how do they choose between the two constitutions? Um, um, it's interesting you mentioned that. I don't, <laughs> um, you know, even- I mean, I'm assuming you know what a woman is. So no, no, but even- uh, <laughs> We had to, we had to get that authors, out of the way. Uh, I'm responding um, uh, from a, an author's position I, because I immediately began to think, don't I mention, I, I thought I mentioned somewhere that the, the amazing defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. If I didn't, I, I probably should have. It's possible, but I was going to say I, in my, in my that, partial in the... defense that, uh, you know, indexes are, are still drawn up by human beings. That's right. That's right. I, I don't know how this is, why this is so, but apparently you can't get a program uh, that will draw up a decent uh, index. Maybe it's too effective or it includes everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. I, uh, I may have missed that, yeah. No, no, I, uh, you know, after a while you you forget what you wrote exactly. But I think uh, it's uh, um, the question of, the, the, the women's question, of course, which has always been uh, an, uh, an important part of and in, and in a way a complement to the race question in America. Yeah. Uh, and from, you know, from the earliest part of American history from the early 19th century to the early 20th century to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, there have always been sort of parallel movements uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, women's liberation and uh, black liberation or other race uh, liberation. And one can understand why, because the, there's, a, there's a sort of, they both come out in a way of the Declaration of Independence and of the notion that um, uh, all men are, all, all men are, the all men who are created equal are not all men. <laughs> they're, they're also women because they form a species and you need right. women and men right. to make a species. Um, and so uh, we know that that's the, the case um, that uh, that women are not forgotten in the Declaration of Independence. They're even mentioned 
um, uh, at least once, if not more than once, um, in the discussion of Indians, Indian warfare, and the undistinguished destruction of men, women, and children, I think it says something like that uh, in, the, in the text of the declaration, uh, indicating that women and children have rights uh, not to be killed uh, indiscriminately or unjustly, just like men uh, have those rights. So uh, yes, I think it's, uh, it's, it's confusing um, the story of um, women's liberation because it's more open-ended than uh, race in a way. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, uh, there's more of, there's probably more of uh, convention mixed with nature in matters of sex or gender, as we say today, uh, yeah, than right. in cases of race. Uh, although there's convention mixed in with nature in both um, areas, I think. Um, so I don't, yeah. yes, I, uh, I don't really write much about that, but I don't write about foreign policy at all. So there's a lot of yes. American politics that is not in this book. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, fair enough. I thought I would throw it out there just because you mentioned women. No, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, well, one of the courses I had with you, I, I don't think I mentioned it was, was uh, a course called The Natural Law, uh, CMC 2016. Uh-huh. There's a lot of philosophy um, in your background. Uh, how did you, um, did, did you study that in your PhD? Uh, did you study well, with Mansfield? Uh, yes, I, I, I'm a Harvard. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Harvard uh, product. I'm a Harvard man. Harvard the, man. Uh, Harvard mm-hmm. man. Yes. A Harvard <laughs> man. This is not widely known outside of Harvard, but a Harvard man uh, t- technically, I don't know what that means, but anyway, uh, basically, <laughs> uh, it's accepted that a Harvard man is an Harvard undergraduate. Um, if you gotcha. have a PhD or a master's or the equivalent from Harvard, um, you're not quite a Harvard man uh, ah. in, the, in the full undergraduate sense of the term. You're, I don't know what you are. You're a Harvard <laughs> something. You're a Harvard person. You're a Harvard, I don't know, you're, you're a student of Harvard or something. Uh, like Harvard that. spirit. I got all my degrees in Harvard. So gotcha. that's since I'm a full product. But I studied with Harvey Mansfield. Uh, among um, and Judith Sklar, among others, in political philosophy, and uh, also with um, uh, Ed Banfield and James Q. Wilson and uh, other people in American politics, Sam Sam Huntington, uh, as well. Um, there Who were, was the was primary quite a, influence? Was quite on a good department in those days. So what was I, the what was, was the lucky, lady's name? You know, Jan something. Pardon? Yeah. What was the lady's name you mentioned? Jan something? Oh, uh, Judith uh, Schlar. Oh, Judith. S-H-K-L-A-R. Okay. And so um, who was the most in- influential on you? Can you pick somebody or was it? Well, probably, uh, probably Mansfield because I, I took more of his courses. All right. I just want to know who my intellectual grandfather is, you know, because you're <laughs> there's you and then. You know, I know Jaffa well, the, through Yulman, and I know. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, the amazing thing about uh, Harvey is that he just turned 90 wow. and he's still teaching. Wow. He's still actively on the faculty. 
um, and and teaching, uh, as far as I know, a full load, but he's certainly teaching. What was he like as a professor? Did, did you get the C-minus Harvey Mansfield thing from him? Well, of course, he was, yeah, his nickname was C-minus Harvey Mansfield because he crusaded against great inflation, of which yeah. there was quite a bit and is quite a bit, even more now. Yeah. Do you know what the most commonly given grade at Harvard University is right now? I'm going to take a wild guess and say it's an A minus. Yes, A minus. Okay. And the second most commonly given grade <laughs> is A. <laughs> now, was uh, that I mean, the last was time that I the checked? Case? It was, and then B plus. So was that the case when uh, you were there, though? Um, it was on on its way to that. I don't think okay. it was quite there yet. Okay. Uh, but it was moving up. Yes. Um, Do you? Uh, but, Har- but Harvey was, uh, you know, a, 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 he was an amazing lecturer, um, probably the best, uh, consistently the best lecturer I've ever heard. Uh, every class was um, dazzling in some, in some way uh, or in multiple ways. Uh, and he was, uh, he was you know, he had his own uh, expansive scholarly project, really. But he was also, uh, he was just very good at teaching you how to read, you know, read yes. philosophically, yes. Um, which is different from just reading. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's reading at, at a very high intensity. Um, and, uh, and he showed you how to do that the only way you can, really, by example. Now... I've always thought of you as a strong lecturer. Uh, when I think of you and your courses, that's what I think of. Do you think that you got that appreciation for a really strong lecture from yes, him? Yes, I think I think so. I mean, uh, I had a lot of good, uh, I had a lot of very smart teachers and good teachers, um, but I don't think um, any of them was a better lecturer than uh, Mansfield. But, you know, somebody like uh, Harry Jaffa, who was never formally a teacher of mine, and he was not at Harvard, he was at Claremont. Uh, I I learned a lot from him, obviously, just from being around him and listening to him. Uh, But he was not nearly as, um, you know, systematic a teacher, I would say, as, uh, as Harvey was. He was, he, he, he was capable of of giving a good lecture, but most of the time he improvised uh, much more so than uh, Harvey would have, or for that matter, Judith Sklar. Uh, did did Mansfield uh, dialogue much in the classroom like Jaffa might? Uh, well, I would say Jaffa's strength was in dialogue and in um, debate, in conversation. Uh, not so much in lecturing. And Harvey's was in lecturing, not so much in dialoguing and conversation. <laughs> that matches what I thought. Um, I don't think this interview would be complete if we didn't talk about the conservatives and the two constitutions. You have a chapter on Reagan. You have something on the Bush doctrine there. Um, yes. Oh, that's right. I, I guess I, I, take, I take back my earlier... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, yes, declaration of uh, yeah, that's right. that's right. non-involvement in foreign policy. I do have 
a whole chapter really on foreign policy in that yeah yeah what are what are we to learn about bush and the bush doctrine from this well the the bush doctrine was um uh you know as it it, it began life as a reaction of course to 9-11 and it was a uh a justified you know a righteous indignation um over the uh evil done on that day to the United States and its, uh, its citizens. Uh, But it was um, unfortunately um, not thought through, I guess you could say Mm -hmm. it was not statesmanlike in the end. It was um, um, it, it lacked the, the sobriety and the, uh, realism of the very of the best of American foreign policy in our in our tradition, and um, I, I focus in that piece on the second inaugural address, which is Bush's sort of um, uh, maximum statement about the necessity to um, democratize many parts of the world in order to yeah. tame them right. and uh, and liberate them and solve our solve the problem of terrorism by eliminating injustice essentially uh which is a you know which is a uh a, an understandable response but not a reasonable policy uh and one that was doomed i th- i thought from the from the beginning uh because of that and so um uh, right after 9-11, I asked uh, Angelo Cotavilla, who died uh, le- uh, just last year, yeah. uh, who was a great uh, professor of foreign policy and international relations, among other things. Yeah. Uh, and it was a PhD from Claremont, um, from the Claremont Graduate School back in the, uh, I guess, late 60s. He must have gotten it or early 70s. And. Um, uh, I asked him to undertake a, a column, which we called Victory Watch. And in the very first issue after 9-11, we had a, the cover story was a kind of, was a, a, a meditation on what it would take to win this war that we were now embarked on. And it was very unclear what that war was going to be. This is before really the, the invasion of Afghanistan, long before the invasion of Iraq. Um, was this in 2001? It was obviously going to be something big. And uh, we both felt quite uh, apprehensive that like, uh, as in many other times in the 20th century, America would go to war with a righteous cause, but a losing um, battle plan, a losing strategy. Um, and, you know, the, the ignominiousness of our withdrawal from Afghanistan finally under President Biden is sort of the, yeah. we, we, we couldn't have predicted it uh, right. in, in all of its sort of shameful detail. Uh, but some, we knew something uh, very uh, bad yes. would probably come out of the whole experience and nothing that could really be called victory in the end. That column you're referring to, was that in 2001? 
that it was published? That was in 2001. Yes, gotcha. it was um, probably uh, fall. Quarter. Whatever the whatever the I forget the you know what date was on the issue, but it would have come out right after uh, 9/11. That that strikes me as uh, the, your assessment of the Bush doctrine. But why can't Trump say it that well? <laughs> that that he, he 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 didn't say it near as well. But he seemed like he uh, he has kind of a on a gut level that same sentiment that you had. Would you say that's correct? Um, well, I, I yes, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I okay. don't know Trump uh, personally. And uh, although I've spent a little time with him in a room with many other people, but um, yes, I think he uh, he now he said something which I, I think was wrong, which is I mean, he famously called um, the uh, invocation of uh, weapons of mass destruction by President Bush and by uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense uh at the time uh a lie and i think that's wrong i i i don't think they were lying i think the intelligence was wrong but it was um everyone understood that that's what the intelligence said or they thought that's what the intelligence was telling them and that's not just us that's the british and the french and the germans uh as well uh, as i say we were wrong about that and maybe we were should have known that it was likely to be wrong, uh, but it wasn't a, a lie. And I don't. I think it's wrong to say that uh, to blame Bush for deliberately getting us into a uh, um, a losing war um, in order to uh, you know for whatever sort of imperial reasons uh, Trump was implying there. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I knew Rumsfeld slightly, um, and, um, he did not strike me as a, as a guy who would ever, uh, would lie in such a matter and certainly not one so irresponsible as to, uh, continue, continue to lie, Mm -hmm. uh, if, if it, or, you know, or, or to speak untruths if he found that they were not true. I think it was uh, the former Secretary of State Colin Powell that yes seemed to think it was a lie later or something. I don't know. Yes, well, he but, was. He felt he'd been used, okay, uh, manipulated uh, into going with uh, data or you know right. whatever that he. Uh, well, that's that, was, that yeah. he distrusted uh, or later distrusted. I'm not sure which. You had a four. I, I just interviewed a former student of yours, Lance Robinson, who was active duty during that time in the Air Force. I think he was a lieutenant colonel at the time. He had flown combat yeah. missions over Iraq, and he agrees that it was not a lie. It was right. based on faulty information, and uh, but it was not a lie. How right. are we supposed to understand Trump? <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, uh, do you have a, you have a couple of chapters, um, more or less about Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a chapter <clears throat> called the Trump and the Conservative Cause, and um, <laughs> uh, one of the uh, 
the sections of that is just simply called President Trump. <laughs> um, political correctness. Um, and then the, another chapter you have after that is thinking about Trump, morality, politics, and the Constitution. You've right. obviously thought about this. Uh, you did predict that he would win. Um, so, um, yes, and I tell people um, about Trump. I, I did vote for him twice. Um, he was not my candidate going into the 2016 election. Uh, I was a back, I was backing, my wife and I were backing uh, um, Scott oh, Walker. Scott oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Walker, yeah, the governor. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Stood up uh, to the unions. Uh, and he, I think, was the first candidate to drop out of the race. So, <laughs> so that shows you how much I know and how much, you know, you should you should uh, stock, you should put in my, my uh, intelligence, but um, he, uh, he dropped out, but um, he, I liked him. I thought he'd been a very good governor, courageous governor. And, uh, um, but he was not ready for this race. I mean, he was still, he was in the governor's yes. mindset and he really didn't have a chance to catch his breath, I think, and sort of begin a presidential race. And so he was out of it before he even began it almost. Um, but I do think that, uh, uh, you know, Trump uh, was probably the only candidate of the 16 or 17 yeah. uh, who could have beaten Hillary. Um, and uh, the others were, uh, there were some very good and, and well-qualified people among them. I mean, uh, governors, senators, Jeb Bush was, uh, there were things about him uh, I liked as well and some of the other candidates too. But I just don't think um, they could have beaten her. I mean, the progressive wave was very, was quite high mm -hmm. at that point. And yes. the idea that you would have a second, um, you know, Obama presidency basically, so you'd have not just the eight years of President Obama, but eight more years of a progressive to complete the revolution, so to speak, uh, the complete the transformation, as he called it, of the United States of America. Um, that was a real uh, political program. I mean, that that's more or less what would have happened, I think, if yeah. uh, if she had won, and and she was very likely to have won against anybody else. It, it, it took someone who was um, able to break through, you might say, the ice of, of American politics, the frozen uh, forces in American politics uh, to uh, uh, dethrone her. And so it, it was only Trump, I think, who could have done it. Uh, now, he, uh, you know, I, I, I said in the, in the beginning that Trump had an obligation to get serious and that he, he can't, he couldn't just think that he could become president and, uh, and, and do it as like a, you know, a weekend job or something <laughs> and all would come out correctly. And I think it took him a long time to realize uh, if he ever realized how difficult the job is, how serious the job is. Um, yeah. yeah. And that was disappointing. And I think that was his, he didn't rise as he should have risen. However, right. uh, he was still a pretty good president. I mean, in terms of his domestic and foreign policy, 
he produced a lot of very good public policy for the country. If he had, um, I think his biggest mistake, of course, was, and I have a lot of friends who disagree with me about this, but I think his biggest mistake was maintaining that he had, he had the election stolen from him and then allowing that, but even so, he could still have made that argument and then at the end simply said graciously, you know, right. I've lost it. Sure, yeah. You know, I, uh, they stole it fair and square, uh, you know, well, better luck next time. Yeah. Um, and, and left office and he would have been in a much better position in history's eyes and also in, in uh, the voters' eyes, perhaps, in 2024 than he may be. But, but, having, but taking the route he took and then um, yeah. you know, uh, speaking at the Ellipse rally and launching the whole January 6th uh, disaster, uh, he, you know, he, he left office um, having really uh, botched. <laughs> yeah is uh, the end of his presidency do you and think he that's didn't have just, to do that i mean he, yeah. could have been, he could have left in a much better way than he did one of the virtues that that he claimed to have uh in running was that he wasn't a politician and yet it seems like a politician would have avoided some some of those things because politicians actually care what people think. Yes. Um, right. So it's 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 ironic that well, first of all, it's ironic anybody who claims not to be a politician is running for office. <laughs> but um, but he did he ever was he supposed to have become a politician? Is 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 that would that have uh, fixed the problem? You think uh, if he would have well. Just, become a politician when um when a modern american politician um denies he's a politician that (laughs) usually means he's a conservative Uh, yes oh that's very very good said by a politician he means he's not a member in good standing of the administrative state Mm. uh or to put it differently he's on the people's side not the government's side or he's on the country side not the court side and uh, that's all politically understandable um that doesn't mean however that um you're you shouldn't you shouldn't prepare yourself to be a statesman right and, and to take seriously the duty you're undertaking yes. when you run for a, a, a high public office um, in, a, in a way, it means we have to prepare all the more seriously uh, if you're eschewing the, you know, the more usual uh, appointed positions and uh, or service in the co- in the endless Congress uh, or whatever. Um, in terms of Trump, Reagan, I mean, Reagan was yeah, very yeah. much like this, you know, that he uh, in 1980, yes. he ran basically against the government uh, that uh, and again in 1984 you know he was not a politician he was uh, the people's candidate he, he he was his his tropes are just as populist as almost any as anything that Trump came up with and in fact Trump's slogan you know let's make America great again was Reagan's slogan in 1980 and in 1984 he used exactly the same uh 
wording uh, and the same, you know, rallying cry. He, it's true. He didn't have the hats. Right. <laughs> you mentioned he didn't when, have you, MAGA, when you but, mentioned but the he, he MAGA had, thing. He, yeah. I mean, the similarities. Right. Uh, one doesn't want to go too far in right. pressing this, but the similarities <laughs> between Reagan's campaigns and Trump's um, are Im- impressive at, at one level. Uh, now, they're very different people, very different personalities. Yes. And Reagan had been a successful two-term governor of California. Yeah, oh, that's that's a big difference, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and mentioned... it's crazy. We- I mean, you know, uh, if one were uh, legislating, <laughs> right. one would not uh, want to encourage candidates for president to make that their first political race. You know, <laughs> they've never yeah. had an office or sought an office before is is kind of uh yeah. uh, uh what would you say uh um uh, dangerous or risky yeah regarding the maga slogan I, I hear quite often just a really quick retort that that assumes that america was great at some point when was america great and um, i know you yeah. refer that to that in, in your book you say that assumes that america was great at some yes. point my, I, I, I guess I could ask you that question. Was America ever great? I'm assuming I'm going to get a very nuanced answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think the, like everything uh, you say is nuanced. Yes. No. Um, uh, great, of course, doesn't mean perfect. Um, but as it, it does, it, does America represent a great um, idea or set of ideas? Does it, has it achieved uh, great political things? Has it had great political figures um, gracing its history? Uh, I think the answer to those questions is all yes. I mean, we've also had some uh, very, uh, you know, evil or at least uh, um, um, backward political figures too. too. But overall, the, the story of the country has been one of uh, the affirmation of some, some um, uh, great and, and noble um, ideas, or you don't at least think a that, partial that, affirmation. You don't think that Trump was a racist, do you? Um, um, well, no, do you I don't that? think Trump was, ra- I mean, <clears throat> I don't think Trump's problem was that he was a racist. Uh, I don't know <laughs> yeah. what his... I don't know what his personal ideas were. Um, he, you know, he was, um, he struck me as like a lot of people um, in that generation uh, whom I'd known, um, you know, who, uh, whose, whose language was not that of, a, of an assistant professor uh, up for tenure, uh, but right. who, you know, came from a rougher uh, walks of life, and uh, you know, I mean, Trump's a guy who knew his way around a construction uh, 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 site, and he, you know, he he knew working uh, people, sort of of the old type, doing physical labor, skilled labor. Um, and he, of course, he also knew Hollywood and a lot of the, you know, the, the flattering arts of, uh, of late modernity as well. Uh, he's an unusual guy. But, <clears throat> but it seems to me that um, 
the, the school of thought that says basically America's problem and the problem of every American is racism is, is, a, is a very narrow uh, and uh, um, you know, uh, unperceptive uh, point of view, actually. Charles, what's the problem with conservatism? What's wrong with it? You have a chapter. What's wrong with conservatism? <laughs> and you have a section in here in search uh, yeah, of conservative I, uh, principles. Well, How are mean, we conserving? That, yes. Uh, the problem with conservatism is uh, um, it's uh, m- more conservative um, than is good for it. Uh, that is, it, it, it couldn't, it's, um, it likes uh, all the arguments which uh, shy away from claims of justice um, and uh, in favor of, of arguing about um, efficiencies and economies and utilities and I mean, in the sense of uh, uh, utility functions, you know, and it's it's interested in disagreeing about things that are not uh, that disagreeable about, you know. I mean, it's 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 right. it's it's um, it, it's depoliticized in many ways, and so the problem with the conservatism in its uh, you know, in its uh, at its heyday, let's say in Reagan's time, was that it couldn't really see a way to um, uh, so to speak, start the country over again. I, I don't mean that literally, but <laughs> to sort of uh, break with the um, with liberalism as a comprehensive public philosophy and as and as the um, uh, um, the the uh, theory of the administrative state and it it conservatism likes for history to be continuous and smooth flowing Um, uh, and is is not really about um, uh, it's not really about going back. It's it's about uh, uh, going forward slowly <laughs> um, and nice uh, gradually. It's a kind of uh, gradualism, uh, which is fine for many things, but not for everything, and not for the most important things. And I think that's. Um, when um, when Reagan in his farewell address sort of came to the painful subject of what he had failed to do. Um, and he took credit mostly for very positive things. I mean, after all, he was a quite successful president by most uh, measures. Uh, he took credit for those things modestly, uh, thanking the American people for helping him start the economy again and uh, um, help to uh, set the Soviet Union on the course to eventual defeat uh, and a few other things. Uh, but he, uh, including sort of a new patriotism in the country, uh, but he, he admitted that the one thing he really had failed to do was institutionalize that new patriotism. 
and he left office um, in a changed America, he said, in a different country from the one he grew up in, uh, which is a very interesting thing to say. And it, it's in a way a very uh, damaging or surprising admission that the, the country is, is not the same country that you grew up in uh, and that it's not going to be the same country in the sense that you can't, he couldn't find a way back to what he called unambivalent patriotism. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, the country was flying the flag everywhere. It was, there's a kind of open patriotic season in the eighties uh, from uh, coming out of his term in office, terms in office. Uh, but he, he knew basically, he admitted that it, it wasn't the second American revolution that he needed to produce. He hadn't been able to change the universities and the, the grade schools and the high schools and the culture of the country. And maybe no one could have done it. Um, and I think it's more important to, uh, to keep alive the ambition to do it uh, and to think about study how to, it might be done um, than it is simply to lament not having done it um, because I don't think it's a, it, it's a fate. I mean, I don't think, you know, modern liberalism will last forever. Uh, it, things change in politics and even things that seem unchangeable can change very quickly as we found in the collapse of the Soviet Union, which after all yes. did not, didn't lose a major war, didn't have, I mean, the system was working more or less as well as it had ever worked. Um, and yet it had lost the one thing most needful, uh, the system's belief in itself. Um, Solzhenitsyn used to say this, there are no believing communists left in the Soviet Union. <laughs> they're all, they're all at, at Berkeley and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, NYU you, and God knows where else. You, you've, you've always struck me as a, an optimistic person. Is, mm -hmm. Are you that way? But well, first of all, is that true? And, and if it is, are you that way by nature? Is it just that you have extra serotonin in your brain or, <laughs> or is yes. there some hope that you have? Cause so many conservatives, so many Republicans, so many independent people that would just say I'm an independent they would yeah. uh they strike me as um curmudgeon or they strike me as sad mm -hmm. um not so much angry as i think beyond, underneath an anger is which oftentimes gets uh misinterpreted as racism or something like that it's just a sadness uh mm -hmm. at a perceived um unstoppable degradation of something they love. Yes. Well, um, no, I, I mean, I have had uh, on the whole a very happy life and I'm very lucky um, in my family and in my friends and in my education. Um, and I, I certainly am grateful for all of that um, and don't, un I, I hope under underprize it um it's not you know not everyone is lucky 
like that. Uh, but at the same time, I, as an analyst, I think, um, you know, that there are a, a lot of signs that liberalism um, is getting old and that the, there's a lot of uh, decay in, the, in, the, in modern politics and in the modern state. That doesn't necessarily mean that liberalism will be replaced by something better than liberalism. Uh, oftentimes things are replaced by worse things. Yet it raises, right. it at least um, uh, penetrates the, the uh, delusion that, uh, you know, nothing can change or that this is a kind of fate or inevitability that has fallen upon us and that, and that uh, uh, will never get off of us. Um, that, I, that I don't believe. I don't think anything is really inevitable in politics in the strong sense of the term inevitable. Um, there is a lot of play in the joints. There's a lot of indeterminacy. There's a lot of ways in which chance continues to affect politics uh, profoundly. And so um, I, don't, um, uh, I don't feel as though we are, you know, we are on a, perched on a cliff and are about to go over. I don't know what comes next, um, but I, I can imagine some better things uh, to come and I can see how, or at least in part, they might get here. Um, whether they will or not, it, 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 is, it can't be predicted. I mean, it depends on what people do and uh, the yeah. decisions they make and the, you know, the votes they take and the, yeah. uh, you know, what's going to happen, what war is going to start um, right. next, uh, because, you know, I think um, there will be another war <laughs> at some point, mm. um, and maybe a big one, but who knows uh, whether it's going to be in the next year, the next 10 years, or the next hundred years. I, I don't think we can, we can say, um, it's interesting to see how the Federalist handles this question. Um, they, it basically, um, Hamilton has it uh, both ways. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I forgot now uh, exactly which number this is in, but uh, at one point he says, I think Madison says actually that uh, the greatest expenses in, in politics are always wars. <laughs> Wars and um, the associated costs of defense. And compared to that, the, everything else is like one sixteenth <laughs> of, of the, uh, what has to be paid for in a, in a budget, in a public, in a, a country's budget. Um, but elsewhere, uh, he records the opinion too that, you know, it may be that uh, if, if America holds together as a, as a, as one continent spanning country, that there'll be a lot more peace in our future than we realize, um, because we will be a great power, uh, and people will not be in a position to offend us or to harm us. Um, so who knows? I mean, you could, you could either, you could run that argument, uh, either way, 
And I think that's more or less still the case, except that um, as science has advanced yeah. and weapons have become more powerful, right. our zone of safety has uh, diminished considerably. And yeah. uh, that I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's been very hard for American politics to make the adjustments that it needs to make to continue to try to guarantee us the same kind of safety we've had um, in the past. Um, it, I think there are many things be... it could do, right. I think, to, to, you know, missile defense, my old friend Angelo's, you know, that was his, <laughs> his issue for decades. And uh, it never really got built. I mean, we don't no. have a missile defense, basically, except for the stray missile from North Korea that might head in our So direction. he was one of the SDI guys from the 80s? He was one of the... Uh, yes, he was called Star uh, he Wars. worked for Malcolm Wallop and for the Reagan administration. And he, he, was, a, he was instrumental in sort of drawing up the Star Wars uh, idea. And he wrote a, a very good book called While Others Build, uh, which was um, which was on every, I mean, other countries are building missile defense, we're not. And uh, it's also still true, other countries are building nuclear weapons and we're not. Right. Uh, or not as, as many as we probably need to. I, I, I guess I have this. to excuse myself because okay. I, I'm, well, speaking of office hours, and there might yeah, be students yeah. lined up outside who want to come in. Speaking of uh, having a reason for hope and uh, uh, investing in the next generation is uh, certainly a good reason to have some hope. So I definitely want your students to have as much access to you as possible for well, all of you. for all of our <laughs> sakes. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Thank Kessler. you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to see you. And uh, best of luck to you. Stay in touch.